0: Welcome to Bonnets at Dawn, the show that explores the lives and works of women writers from the 18th, 19th and 20th century. I am your host, Hannah Chapman. And I am your host, Lauren Burke. And this week on the show, we are going to talk about adapting the lives of literary women in comic form, which is something that we did in our book, Why She Wrote. And to help us do that, we are very pleased to welcome and include on the show our illustrator, Kaylee Bales. Uh, Kaylee, do you want to introduce yourself to the lovely listeners?
1: Hi, hi everyone. Um, My name is Kaylee Bales. I am an illustrator formerly based out of California, now relocated recently to Portland. Um, I uh, have always had a big love of um, literature. I was about to say literary. (laughs) I always had a big love of literature uh, stemming from a big love of Jane Eyre and... um, yeah, did this project and it was amazing.
0: Oh, Kaylee, when did you first like get introduced to Jane Eyre?
1: In freshman year of high school, I believe. And um it was on a list of books we could read that would give us credit for class. And I picked Jane Eyre knowing nothing about it. And um my library had some amazing 1940s copy with these block print illustrations mm-hmm. that were so so good. So I fell in love with it then and then kind of rekindled the relationship when I was older and reread it and I mean I, now I constantly listen to the audiobook and read it all the time but.
2: and that's how we found Kaylee is because you were doing Jane Eyre fan art. So did you always have sort of I going to say like a visual relationship with the book.
1: Yeah, definitely. I think that because I'm, I've am i always been drawing, um, doing adaptions, like doodling characters from books is something that I've always done. And I've always, you know, um, had a big connection with that and also kind of drawing them and envisioning them exactly how the author kind of wanted them like finding all the little details about you know their height and their eye color and their attitude and everything like that to make them more like real people that was always big for me
2: that's a visual one too I mean there's so there's so much like landscape there's architecture there's so many details in Jane Eyre that like should be seen I feel I feel like as well Charlotte Bronte like
0: really describes people like as opposed mm-hmm. to Austin, who doesn't, she'll just be like, "Oh, a dark complexion or
1: yeah, totally. some nice
0: eyes." And Charlotte <laughs> Bronson's like the eyes were this big and they were this close together, and that yeah. kind of like this vibe about them,
1: like <laughs> completely. Oh, complete. I mean, she really had the notion of sketching a character. Yes, um, and you know, I loved that. I that was one of the big things that I loved about Jane Eyre was the, um, just the notes of like every detail in the room of like, here's Mm -hmm. what the wallpaper looked like. I was sitting on this, like, this was the vibe. It was this time (laughs) outside. Like, I loved that. The Brontes do give you the vibe, which I think is important.
3: Yes,
1: (laughs) Absolutely. I mean, I was struck. I mean, right in the beginning with the red room. Yeah. It was like, it was this, and then you don't. And then finally, when she gets to, oh, this room is sometimes used because my, you know, aunt goes in it to get a little portrait of her dead husband who died in the room. <laughs> and then you're like, oh, she gets to at the very end. I love it.
2: Which is good because you had to like, you had to draw vibes for that Bronte comic, that Charlotte Bronte comic where it was sort of like her sort yes. of coming up with that or what I envisioned her. Mm-hmm thinking about when she was coming up with that
1: yeah that was so cool to even learn that it was like thornfield was based on a real place and all that stuff was like oh my god it's like the real thornfield hall this is amazing
2: now many of you have already purchased our book and i want to thank you very much for that thank you round of applause for you guys that have done that Mm -hmm. um So you will all already know, you know, what this is about. But um, for those of you that have not, I just want to say that Why She Wrote is a series of comics and essays that discuss the lives and work of 18 women writers and the ties that bind them. So... Some of them are related or directly influenced or responding to each other in their work. And we really wanted to sort of, you know, capture that vibe, get almost a six degrees of Jane Austen, I think is one one thing we were discussing at one point when we were working in the book. Um, also, there's there's women in the book that are gossiping about each other, which I really enjoy, or dissing each other. I feel like, George Eliot Distracts Mm. should be maybe our next book, to be honest. That would be a really good one. Now, one question we have been asked a lot is how we determined which authors would go in the book. So I want to quickly address that um, and say that, first of all, this book is not meant to be comprehensive for sure. This is not the sort of 100 women writers you should know about. Um, One chapter discusses Louisa May Alcott, Beatrix Potter, and Frances Hodgson Burnett. So those are three authors who are still bestsellers, um, and everyone sort of knows them. But they are also women that are often presented as cozy children's authors, and we really wanted to offer up a different side of them and talk about how they were also strong businesswomen who had an effect on copyright and licensing. And that's just it's just not something that you hear about a lot. Um, There were also a lot of authors who were cut because of things like permissions, not enough visual or biographical reference. Um, There's some authors like Winifred Eaton or Harriet Beecher Stowe, who had just like big stories, things that were sort of unwieldy with the the format that we were using for this book. We didn't really find a way to sort of condense them and talk about them appropriately. Maybe they will be better fit for future projects down the line. Now, for today's episode, we have each picked an author that we adapted from the book. And we're going to talk a little bit about sort of the struggle that we had adapting their work, maybe any things that we learned, all of that good stuff. So, Kaylee, do you want to kick us off?
1: Yeah, definitely. So I think that for me, it was kind of actually the one who was most popular and I generally knew the most about and also who was who had the most information about her, Mm -hmm. which is Jane Austen. Oh, Um, interesting. Because... I think especially because my part really was visually. And so visually kind of making sure I didn't get muddled with all of the different adaptions of her Mm -hmm. of um, really making it. So it was Jane and not somebody else's interpretation of her, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, even like Anne Hathaway or like this or that. I mean, so many things from different corridors, you know, um, kind of influencing it but then also making sure that she is recognizable as Jane because I think that people have an idea of who she is mm-hmm. um, even when drawing her portrait because there actually have been renderings of her as like this is actually what she would look like in real life you know somehow they did that my goodness and they made you know like the wax figure which was incredible mm-hmm. and that
0: helped people me- love trying to guess what Jane Austen would have looked like
1: totally it's, it's like a national pastime yes it's like what was she really like for real what would she even look like what would she smell like if you were there with her you know I think there's a huge fascinate, fascination with that but for my first portrait of her with her section I based it off of that sort of real life wax rendering of her and then you know getting notes back, like we should actually kind of reference more of that really famous portrait of her where she's in her little white cap. Mm. She's got her little curly bangs. Like Everybody knows that one, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And so kind of mixing those two of like, here's the Jane that you know, but also who trying to also wrap in who she was as well.
0: I was glad you included the white cap because I'm sure I read somewhere that her and Cassandra were wearing, like a white cap was like quite a matronly thing to wear. And I know that um, those two sisters had like adopted wearing them younger than was normal yes that, Almost I like that they were a just note. like yeah taking themselves off the marriage market visually like completely we're not these fresh young things
1: her dowdy white cap that she would always be wearing it's it's kind of like the modern day equivalent of like a comfy hoodie i think that <laughs> somebody <laughs> would always wear you know like and so she definitely is always supporting that in the comics for sure
2: i like that you're like idea of her though too like she doesn't seem dowdy like she seems like really like like you have really good like at like the language the body language for that comic especially I really love um like she looks like she's fun and funny and like sly and she's, she's sparkling yeah at the start of the comic
0: Jane is really hopeful and like she's about to publish well she's just sold her first book and she is like in her 20s and I'm not saying like no bad stuff has happened but it's kind of in the course of the comic that all of the bad stuff has happened and I thought that you did a really good job of capturing like the lightness at the start and then like the bad times ahead and then her kind of like coming through it and then like the Jane at the end of the comic I feel like you even drew her like a little heavier like her Mm -hmm. shoulders are not slightly totally, and even
1: more of a Mm -hmm. subdued color palette for sure Mm -hmm. because in the beginning it's I mean in Bath, of course, outside it's raining and cold, but then she gets inside and she's so excited and it's like that wonderful warm fireplace. But then at the end it's like moving out, empty house, you know, and it's kind of that feeling of sitting in in the bedroom that you spent so much time in, but then seeing it empty. It's like that chilling feeling, but also the slight feeling of excitement of going to the next thing for sure.
2: Hannah, did you have difficulty writing about Jane because Jane is like maybe too close?
0: Uh, There's an error in the essay (laughs) that I didn't notice because I was too
2: confident. (laughs) (laughs) And that's going to haunt me for the rest of my life. It's like how car accidents always happen, like closest to home. Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) it's like that. And it's like, (laughs) yeah, we got some feedback saying we needed an editor. Let me tell you,
0: that mistake bypassed me, the author, who worked at the Jane Austen Center, (laughs) who really knew how old Jane Austen was when she moved to Bath. It bypassed Lauren, because we edited each other's essays and comics. Mm -hmm. Bypassed our editor, our assistant editor, a copy editor, our many blind readers. But there are a lot of people (laughs) that did not pick up on that. So (laughs) obviously the Jane Austen fans are like, this age is wrong. (laughs) 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 Um, Yeah, I did... It felt like the I felt like the personalities in that comic were quite easy like I did give her her dad maybe like the kinder side of Mr Bennett treatment you know <laughs> yeah. like
3: that yeah, 95
0: totally. Mr Bennett that's the vibe yeah. um and the sister I think just Jane Austen's so accessible there's like becoming Jane as Miss Austin regrets. There's all of the adaptations. So yeah, it did kind of feel quite like a natural one to slip into telling the story of. And I really wanted to write about her time in Bath because we have talked about it so much on this show and just together And Bath is a place that we have visited. Um, it's also a place that I have very complicated, uh, you know, a complicated relationship with mm-hmm. and um, I talked about it a lot working at the Jane Austen Centre so I think it isn't the beginning and end of my relationship with Austen but Bath is a big part of it and I really relished the opportunity to um, to talk about it more and I felt bad for Kaylee because so many of my notes were like they're walking up a street they're specifically walking up Milsom Street as if they're walking towards what is now Holborn House, the Holborn House Museum but would have been the Sydney Gardens Hotel like <laughs> yeah, all totally. of these really specific notes and I was no, like but oh I love that
1: I love when it's really if I can get a, an actual like street name because then I can go in and get that solid reference and I mm-hmm. love that like for that part totally it's like that specific gate and how the buildings were where their little windows and all the tiny, tiny, tiny little chimneys lining it. Like that was such a specific, and luckily because it was a semi-popular area, there were drawings from around that time that I could reference, which was awesome.
0: One of the things I included was a pub that I used to go to with my ex when I lived in Bath. That, that was one of the, like, the locations that was in there. And I kept being like, no, this pub is still standing. And I researched it to double check and it was like the main inn in Bath at the time and then one of the notes was like for the first shot over the roofs and I thought Kaylee smashed it I was like I want it to look like the rooftops at the beginning of the Muppets Christmas Carol Um,
1: oh yes (laughs) and I knew exactly what you were talking about I was like oh yes here we go I even pulled it up as like a reference while I was drawing like doing the uh, sketches and thumbnails and everything
0: which is the wrong era and also a model so
1: (laughs) yeah but it's it's the vibes okay right it's
2: the vibes. Oh, my goodness. I I kind of struggled with, like, Emily Bronte because there's mm. been a lot of, like, depictions of Emily. And there's loads of biographies. And there's who I think she is. And I was, like, very self-conscious, like, while writing that. I was like, this is who I think she is. But also like kind of the point of that comic was like who knows like we only really get emily through these other sources and mm-hmm. she's really hard to nail down and i think while writing that one while writing all the brontes i was just like god i feel like too close to them in a way i almost you didn't wish write all the
0: well,
2: writing charlotte and emily i think i actually yeah. struggled because i i was like oh i feel too close to them and i feel like i've had too much sort of like attachment to their work and like have seen their homes and like they were actually like the hardest ones for me to sort of like see clearly because it was also uh, like yeah. oh how much do other people know about them because i've just been mm-hmm. banging on about them for like years on a podcast and <laughs> so yeah, is this yeah, it's really sense? hard to like yeah.
0: the gaps feeling like when we were writing the essays and just worrying that you're um you're not explaining enough mm-hmm. because you're like this is obvious And then and so it's really helpful, like to have those notes from Julia and Juliet just being like, I don't I don't know what you're talking about. You just need to circle back and put some more information in here. The hardest essay I had was um, Francis Hodgson Burnett, because my God, did that woman live a life? Mm -hmm. And, you know, like she lived in the UK. There was an economic crash based on the civil war in America that really affected the the manufacturing industry in the UK and then she moves to America and then and it's just all of this stuff and because yeah. she was a bit older when I was writing about her there's like a whole life whereas with Jane Austen she was 26 in the comic so
1: mm-hmm. yeah exactly. she hadn't lived
0: as much yeah circling back to the Brontes though Lauren the Emily Bronte comic was the first one that you wrote when we were doing our sample
3: mm-hmm.
0: yeah our samples yeah. for the book so it was really interesting to see how you like worked on that to change not only like your understanding of Emily, but also like the seeing the book evolve through the comic yeah. and through the rewrites and like your intention with what you wanted to say, not just about her, but about like all writers. That was mm-hmm. really interesting to kind of see as a writer was to see you like go through that process.
2: Yeah, that's a good point. Cause I think the first draft of the comic was very straightforward of like, this is who Emily is. Mm-hmm. And yeah. then the concept of the book really changed The concept of the book really developed, I should say, um, after that to talk about really one aspect of that person and then put that aspect or that moment of their lives in conversation with other writers. So you can see the similarities and see almost how they're talking to each other. Mm -hmm. And um, there were actually so many authors I felt like I could put with Emily Bronte, including Emily Dickinson, who was... Mm cut from the book and we'll talk about that more later on but um elizabeth barrett browning and ann lister end up uh who she's paired with and it's because they all sort of um have very interesting afterlives so um so yeah kind of like weirdly the that had to completely change the Emily comic, too, is a little it's a little meta because it does even, you know, show Gaskell struggling mm-hmm. with sort of like, what does this all mean? And mm-hmm. I think that's something that we or that I mean, I know for sure, speaking for myself, that I definitely struggled with, especially if you're reading about someone from like multiple sources. People mm-hmm. have like all sorts of different takes on George Eliot. Oh, my like God. All, that was and, such a... And Elizabeth Barrett Browning is like, you can get like a bunch of different takes. And so you're like, what does this all mean? Like, where am I going to land? I think was like big question number one when we were like starting to work on each author. Hannah, who was someone that you struggled with?
0: I am. I loved writing about Beatrix Potter, but Mm -hmm. landing on the right thing for Beatrix Potter definitely took a while. And poor Kaylee, because my God, she had to redraw those pages, especially (laughs) like the last few pages so many times. Yeah. Yeah. Um, to the point where like the last rewrite I did, I was really like, I just need to rewrite the dialogue. So whatever change happens, it can only be a dialogue change. Mm -hmm. Um We'll talk about we'll talk about Miss Potter, the film. More later, but I was definitely influenced by that when I went into writing about her. I knew that she was kind of this quirky gal, she was well off, that she felt very strongly about um her books being accessible to children. Like I knew that, like from the film. I knew that her and Ewan McGregor had a love affair. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Not really though. Like he was just playing, (laughs) he was playing like her partner in the film, Norman Warren. And um, I loved that. But then it was really, I was reading her letters, um, Beatrix Potter's Letters, A Selection by Judy Taylor, and then also Beatrix Potter, A Life in Nature by Linda Lear. And it was reading Beatrix Potter herself and also reading someone's account of her that I really started to get a sense of her drive did go beyond the books being cheap, and small enough for children's hands. Like we knew that she'd kind of created licensing uh, through making and patenting the first Peter Rabbit doll. Like we knew that, but I didn't realize just how driven she was or how passionate she was about protecting her copyright and really how many uh, knockoff products there were on the market and how much she wrote about it. She wrote about this stuff all the time. She was fixated on it. And so, for me, it was really important to just completely look at her romanceless. Yeah. The love story with Norman Warren is beautiful. The letters that she writes to him are so lovely. He mm-hmm. and like that is, that is such a love story. Like, honestly, it just makes me sad thinking about it because that is a man who really. Got her and got what she wanted and like ne- what she needed and was supporting mm-hmm. her through her work which is rare for a woman writer like yeah, to have someone who was really that uplifting time. her yeah so it is really sad but like they made a film about it right and so mm-hmm. my job yeah. was to talk about a different side of Beatrix Potter and so yeah I wanted her to be she was kind of an oddball there's lots of comments about how she didn't really want to like wear fashionable clothes which was fun because one of the other authors in that chapter, Francis Hodgson Burnett, polar opposite. Mm. Right. And so to have this like woman who's really going against society, she's just marching to the beat of her own drum and she's just thinking about and talking about money. And her parents were like socialites, basically. Although Mm. her father trained as a lawyer, he didn't work. um, They just wanted to go on holiday and have a nice time. And they were kind of ashamed of the fact that they're, family money came from trade. And so you've got Beatrix, who's then like, I love it. I embrace it. My life is all about trade. It's all about copyright. It's all about making money. And I just wanted totally. to, to get that across. Just going back to the edits, I got a mis- I made a mistake with like the order that she wrote her book. So we had to mm. go back and on some of the language because I thought I had her talking about the Taylor of Gloucester at the end. And I had mm. this great line. She was like, oh, my next book is about meddlesome cats. And yes. then there was like a link to copycats. And then she like wants to strangle the copycats. Um, but it turns out that actually she was working on Miss Tiddywinkle. <laughs> and I had to find a way of making this picture of her being angry about people stealing her money about mm-hmm. her talking about hedgehog. <laughs> so I was like, oh, the book is about a prickly woman yeah. And I was so proud of myself for like
3: you <laughs> know it works
0: making like do you know like yeah, yeah. like yeah. the edit I was like this is a strong edit I really <laughs> like I felt myself leveling up in that moment Oh yeah uh, and the first know- draft she it finishes with her looking at wallpaper and they just kept saying Hannah this is not a comic about her making wallpaper this is a comic about her writing and I was like but the wallpaper story is just she really did just make her own wallpaper I love that for her
2: What's really hard about writing about real life people and then also doing it in such a condensed fashion, because I feel like the comics, what are they like from six to 10 pages? Mm -hmm, So this is like a really short amount of time is that we can't like we, you know, our editors rightly so, like wanted us to tell a story that had like a beginning, middle and end. And also um, where you saw some growth. We mm-hmm. yeah. saw so, like there's, this like, person like a have a arc. yeah, there's a character arc, there's like a light bulb moment, um, but like real life doesn't like come together like that. Yeah. Oftentimes. It's all
0: middle. It's all middle.
2: Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. So you're like, how do I make these details fit? Like, how do I choose a structure or a moment where that's sort of going to fit? Like, maybe they will have like the light bulb moment 20 years later, or maybe it never really happened at all. And this is sort of my interpretation of
1: the events, you know, Mm -hmm. so Mm -hmm. that was so hard. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. So I think a big thing with all of us is making it accurate and not trying not to then romanticize mm. their lives, you know, but we have to a little bit to obviously create that cohesive story and connect people with the authors, you know?
0: Yeah, when, totally. when did you first realize that, like, something could be fiction based on fact? Because for me, it was watching the film Perfect Storm. And I turned to my mum. Perfect Storm is a film about a shipping, a, a fishing boat that goes mm-hmm. into a big storm and I turned oh. to my mom and I was like how did they know what happened on the boat mum yeah. yeah she was like no no they're they're kind of like it's based on it's based on true events and they're kind of just telling a story about that and I was like wow it's so clever that people can do, can do
3: that, that. for me it, <laughs> it was, was a real like
0: oh
1: balto, balto. Yeah, I remember that was the first movie I'd ever seen where it has the little thing at the very beginning that's like based on true events. And I was like, what the fuck?
0: (laughs) Did you know that um, Balto was the film that Steven Spielberg's animation studio, Amblimation, worked on after abandoning their 2D adaptation of Cats? (gasps) No. No. And then after Balto, Steven Spielberg left And he made the Prince of Egypt at DreamWorks. And then they made Shrek. For more facts like that, (laughs) uh, I have a, a presentation on the film Cats.
2: I mean, I think that this was actually something I sort of grew up with because I feel like a lot of my history teachers and English teachers brought in so many... Um, adaptations or literary biopics or, you know, mm. things that were based on true events into the classroom. Nice. And they would talk a lot about the differences between, you know, what was what was made up for film versus what really happened, which I think is a really effective way to learn. But one thing that I want to look at during this mini season, um, as we're talking to various artists and filmmakers, is like why you have to dramatize like some of those details Mm -hmm. um and Mm -hmm. how how decisions get made um like one example is like my mary shelley comic um i have you know claire claremont in the theater with her and like actually watching this adaptation of frankenstein on stage and like that did not happen and like those things that she said in the Mm. theater happened in a letter Mm-hmm. Um And not at the theater, but I just didn't want the comic to be just her writing because yeah. it could have been just her writing the entire time. And yep. it's a visual medium, and I wanted you to actually see it and be in the theater and sort of connect various moments. So there's a, a lot, lot of, of stuff the like
0: dialogue that. in the Gaskell comic is just Gaskell's letters, mm-hmm. but it's way more effective to just have someone say it yeah. than yes. it is to have it on a letter. And again, like there are some comics where the captions are letters Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. because it really felt like writing but just if it's like a throwaway line it's more natural in a comic to just have
2: someone turn and 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 say say it yeah completely and you want to get like the emotion of the moment as well so
1: yeah big time I think that's the huge thing of of translating it to a visual medium is to get the emotions because I think there's so many things that sometimes you miss if you don't think about it happening um in a real space sometimes. Mm-hmm. I remember doing that mm-hmm. even just with learning about Shakespeare and just plays in general in high school about you have to put this into the context of what would they be doing in real life. And that gives you so many more clues. Like even when um, like there's a scene in Jane Eyre where um, Jane's about to go cause her aunt's dying. She's like, you know, has to go ask Rochester permission to leave for a bit and he's like oh you're, like you're leaving you know like what do people do when they say goodbye and i remember the first few times reading that scene i was like what is like he's just such a weirdo like what is he even doing but if you think about it in a in the visu- in the actual s- space and what they would be doing in real life he has his back to the door he's trying to be like you know kind of keeping her in the room for a second and he's <laughs> trying to be like what else do people do when they say goodbye they handshake ooh like that's kind of cold and then eventually you forget oh he wants a kiss goodbye he keeps mm-hmm. hinting at a kiss goodbye but you don't really get that unless you kind of see it spatially and right. i think that there's so many things like that in even authors lives and everything else like with um elizabeth barrett browning in her room like being cooped away like that mm-hmm. and kind of seeing that visually where it's like kind of this grand room but it's all covered in ivy on the windows and it, it creates a different atmosphere and a different point of view for the person you know yeah Cut
0: this out if this didn't make it into the comic because i remember suggesting it but one of one of the funniest like visual gags in the elizabeth barrett browning comic is that what's the guy mr browning Robert, Robert Browning, Browning. Mm-hmm. Robert Browning mm-hmm. and she had that portrait of him on the wall and I remember when we were like workshopping the comic Lauren I think that and I was, like make it in. have mm-hmm. just have him step into where the portrait would be because yeah. it's such like an easy way of showing like this is someone that she idolizes literally stepping into her life and like mm-hmm. the emotional weight that that would have and that's one of the really yeah. think like fun things that you can do in a comic Or, like, in a visual medium, right, that you can't, Mm -hmm. like, how do you say that, like, without it being super on the nose in mm -hmm. prose form?
2: And it's funny because, like, when I read that detail about, like, her having his portrait on the wall and also the detail of, like, Emily Dickinson having Elizabeth Barrett Browning's portrait Mm -hmm. on the wall, it's like a... It you read it, it's on paper and it feels interesting, but it's it's distant, right? But like when mm-hmm. you see it, it's emotional. Mm-hmm. And um so that was one of the big points of the book to make these figures feel like alive, like people, not just yeah. historic you know, distant historical figures.
1: Yeah, completely. Because even then if the language is different and sometimes like hard to connect to as a modern audience, like emotions on the face and that kind of thing and body language is universal and never changes. Mm-hmm. And so I think that having that context helps connect modern readers to it instantly. And I think that's why biopics are so, you know, as popular as they are because it's that connection and even, you know, like stage adaptions and movie adaptions of things. They're so popular because then you can actually kind of, it helps you understand them so much more and mm-hmm. on a different level.
2: So um, we're going to talk more with our guest today about how do you craft a person on the page. Hannah, do you want to tell everyone who we are going to be talking to today in our interview? Yeah.
0: Phil, shut it. Okay.
2: Sorry. The cat is harassing me.
0: So our guest today, Glennis Fawkes, is the artist and author of Charlotte Bronte Before Jane Eyre. Fawkes is an Ignatz Award-nominated cartoonist and illustrator living in Burlington, VT. Where's VT? What is right? Vermont. Oh, Vermont. Mm. She has worked as an illustrator for archaeological excavations since 1998. What the hell? That's the Amazing. coolest job. What? <laughs> I love Time Team, Glynis. Let's chat. <laughs> Working on sites in Greece, Crete, Turkey, Israel, Cyprus, Syria, and Lebanon she is currently at work on a book about her first trip to greece a draft of which received the mocha arts festival award in 2016 and you can find out more about her and her work at glinisforks.com should i spell that that's g-l-y-n-n-i-s-f-a-w-k-e-s.com
2: so um why don't you start off by telling us about your relationship to charlotte or all of them really you know where it started when you first read Jane Eyre, all of that good stuff.
3: Okay. Well, actually, it started with my mom, who used to read books to my sister and I out loud when we were kids and then into teenagers. And my sister wasn't as interested as I was, but she read Wuthering Heights. And that, especially that opening scene or scene near the beginning with Kathy and the hand going through the window. Like that is unforgettable, and so I was I was absolutely hooked. But I didn't read Jane Eyre until I think um, freshman year in high school, mm-hmm. and w- which used to be a kind of standard high school text in the '80s. Mm-hmm. Um, and I I ac- I I didn't get it. It was too much for me as a as a I don't know whatever it's 14-year-old reader mm-hmm. and I so I I it didn't sink in but then I, I and you know what I cannot remember when was the next time I read it but it was sometime between um you know getting this this book to draw uh and and, and that time. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's, it's interesting, but my mom has that, like in, I found in my parents' house, a copy of Jane Eyre that her, that my mom's grandmother had given her and inscribed. So it's been in, it's been something that's been in the family and I've been interested in for a long time. And so this, this book uh, about Charlotte is part of a, series through the Center for Cartoon Studies. Mm -hmm. So they, they, uh, James Sturm, the editor asked me which, you know, would you like to do one of these and, and gave a list of names of, uh, of potential candidates for, um, for, you know, who I would draw about and the Brontes were the, the clear and obvious choice. Um, yeah. So the, the most difficult part of uh adapting this life yeah life yeah Um, well it was a decision to focus on charlotte and not the not you know not not the whole family Mm -hmm. mostly because charlotte left the most letters and yeah so so she could speak through you know her own voice as much as possible but the really hard thing was that this book i was only allowed 89 pages and yeah, uh, so, that's that's tough so that i'm i mean re looking at it again the like the beginning feels like what's going on here because it's very it's very, it's so condensed and so kind of like every page is a scene and it and it doesn't flow as easily as i would like but that's the reason because we had to I mean we I say that with James as an editor like really focus and decide which scenes could go in and which could not and there was at one point I remember like waking up in the middle of the night and thinking uh you know when I'm done with this book I'm going to make my own version that's going to be 300 pages (laughs) and I'm going to put everything in but
2: uh I know that feeling all too well I Last year I had a book come out about Rosa Parks that was for kids, and it was like 41, maybe 44 pages, right, Yeah. total. And um, I mean, same thing, it's a graphic novel. There's no way you can contain an entire life in these pages. And one of the reviewers was like, why didn't she mention this, 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 and this? And they were things that were actually not about Rosa, particularly. Um, there was actually even a comment of like, she should have like talked about Juneteenth. And I'm like, yeah, that would have been great, but that's like an entirely different story. And I also was trying to do this for children in 44 pages.
3: (laughs) Right. I know. I think a reviewer said that about this book also, like it seems episodic and, um, um, You know, like there are abrupt uh, changes of scene in it or something like that. Mm -hmm. And I think that's that's why. Um, Yeah, it's it's very there. There's there are so many fascinating details about all of their lives that just just it's like it's like the tip of an iceberg. This book. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. Is where did you yeah. go
2: to for research? What was uh, sort of your starting point for that
3: process? Uh, the starting part was the the, the biography, the fiery heart. Mm-hmm. Um, but then the the Brontes book by Juliet Baker was
2: the, the Bible, Barbara. the giant. <laughs> yeah, yeah,
3: Juliet Barker. It was it, yes, and that I I'm uh, yeah I have it on my shelf. Like way up at the top, though you can see the, the <laughs> white one right there. It's the brick, and, uh, right? The brick, and it's it's like full of post-it notes, and um, I was it was cross-referencing quotes that sh- that um, she sometimes split them in half, like from the same letter, she would put some in some place and some in the other, mm-hmm. and I wanted to like k- reconstruct things and figure out you know um, chronology and what's amazing is the press didn't tell me they were doing this but when I had finished the thumbnails of this so I'd drawn the whole thing in pencil you know very roughly but with it as clearly written as I could by hand in order so that other people could read it um the and scanned it they sent it to Juliet Barker and she sent back yeah yeah really cool and really um nerve-wracking mm-hmm. i mean i'm um, um and she sent back 12 pages of very encouraging and very exacting notes saying correct this mailman's hat and <laughs> I, I i'm totally grateful for that because mm-hmm. um it, it's a detail that you know i'm uh, searching and searching through I- images to find the correct you know, the the right kind of hat. And she also said, lower the buns on their heads. Oh,
2: nice. Okay.
3: Or raise them up, raise them up, I think. I had them like at the back of their heads and Mm -hmm. they should be at the top of their heads. So um, that, things like that are, that was invaluable. I think the mission of this book was to try and keep as, you know, um, close to fact as possible Mm -hmm. as as much as like an invented life can be but there's there's so many ways to 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 work with this material which is so which is what's so fascinating about their lives and their work and i think we're keeping it alive by by playing with it
2: yeah yeah absolutely
3: yeah And engaging with it and talking about it and Mm -hmm. listening to it.
2: (laughs) Now, was there um, any Bronte story or anecdote that like particularly spoke to you while you were researching for the book? Um, It could be something that made it into the book or maybe not, too, because I think that's always hard when you come across a story, especially for comics. There were so many stories I came across and I was like, I'd love the story to be about this, but it's not visual enough or, you know, it's so internal or it's just, it's a letter. And like, how do I visually represent this? Um, Yeah. But yeah. Uh,
3: I've been thinking about this because there's so many things that were really surprising. I think one of the things that stands out is, is how she turned down the offers of marriage Mm -hmm. and Charlotte was so determined to have her own life and her, her own way that, that that really stood out, that she was brave enough to know when that, that this was not for her. Mm-hmm. And, and so I, I really appreciated reading about that. Um, but also, you know, in the course of this book, I felt like Charlotte was with me all the time. And one, and so I, I drew a comic about going with her to a yoga class that that was is on Medium, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and and because I was thinking, you know, how how as I was going to yoga like every week, how much she would benefit by this because she 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 got so snarled in her her head so much. I mean, about Monsieur Age. Her her yeah. her kind of crazy devotion to him and and also you know figuring out how to make a living. I think mm-hmm. these things. I mean, especially that is like uh, I I I'm I've had these exact thoughts. You know, mm-hmm. how can I make a living and be an artist? You know, write write and do what I want to do uh, and and that she made it is is thank you Charlotte (laughs) it's I know it's
2: funny that you bring up the marriage because I think that's something early on in the podcast that both Hannah and I found Mm. really interesting about Jane Austen and Charlotte Bronte because they both could have married their best friends husbands who were not like terrible prospects right they're not the love of their lives but they were like decent men, they would have, you know, had security, they would have had a good family and in-laws, like it was a safe choice, but they really decided to go the other way.
3: Yeah. I also wonder if it's, it it was fear of childbirth, I Mm -hmm. mean, or fear of being caught in this, in a kind of domestic world. I mean, both of those, both like dying of childbirth, which is, which is real. Uh, I mean, I I wonder if I if I felt like I had ambition to produce something in the world and not dying was part of my right <laughs> my goal in life. Yeah, marriage might be too much. I mean, and it might feel like too much compromise for what you want to get done in life. I mm-hmm. I, I understand. I think her um her attitude. And her personality through that come through her letters is just so forceful, but also quite vulnerable. I think Mm -hmm. of the kind of apology she wrote for the for uh, Wuthering Heights just feels like like I just want to say, Charlotte, don't take those reviews of this book so seriously, like let it stand and don't apologize and don't worry about reviews, you know, just keep being yourself. Mm-hmm. I mean, that that sounds kind of v- very corny and cliche, but, but she was, she's so strong and also quite, um, I think quite affected by what people said about her. Mm-hmm. And it, and it's kind of a warning to not read the reviews. Yeah. <laughs> They're not true. They're just somebody's opinion. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, that, that. That's affecting too.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I I love her letters. I think her letters might be some of her, fa- like my favorite writing of hers because of <laughs> that quality, because it's so, they're yes. so vulnerable, but also so strong and forceful. Yes,
3: yes, yes. And that she couldn't always see, I mean, that she was, she was both things at the same time mm-hmm. and which I can relate to also.
2: Would you ever return to a Charlotte project?
3: (laughs) Yes. I mean, I mean, it's, it's, it's interesting how, um, because, because so much of what I've done before this is either about my, like comics about my life or things about antiquity, um, Mm -hmm. uh, the past because of all my work in archeology span and, and being married to a classicist, but I, but before that, I was always I was interested in it. So, what's amazing about the 19th century is you can know so much. I mean, as opposed <laughs> That's to amazing, uh, yeah, <laughs> you know, like they're like Sappho. There are fragments. They're not mm-hmm. whole books, and and there are letters, and there's her house, and so so, and I I love this time period because it's so close to ours and so. So I mean it's very similar in some ways, but the fact that we have vaccines and like birth control mm-hmm. are two entirely just that change change our lives entirely. Mm-hmm. That was another um from working on this, I did a comic in the daily shouts for the New Yorker that I feel like is one of my favorites called um 19th century literature with better birth control like Mm -hmm. i feel like i could solve all those novels with (laughs) (laughs) everybody just had birth control and then i think it's more like the conventions of of marriage and you know expectations of marriage Mm -hmm. that that were totally inflexible and kept women in a role that is, I think, still continually changing and is changing with every relationship that exists. What are you working on right now? Well, uh, something absolutely, completely different. I'm working on a graphic adaptation of a, a book by... Eric Klein, who's an archeologist and it's called 1177 BC, the year civilization collapsed. Okay. So it's about the late bronze age, Eastern Mediterranean. And it is about Greece and Crete and Egypt and Anatolia and Canaan and uh, yeah, the Near East and all the civilizations that rose up and made amazing things and then how they all fell apart. So that's amazing. Yeah, it's it's 250 pages. And I've, I've converted Eric's book into um, most, you know, like, a lot of images, sort of little vignettes of people from that time talking about it uh mm-hmm. talking about how civilization collapsing is going for them um <laughs> I feel yeah. like I could relate uh <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, so that's that's very a very different um project um but
2: still adaptation, which I think is Adaptation? Yeah.
3: but but different in that Eric Klein has written this book so it exists already whereas the this book on Charlotte Pronte I really had to craft it from uh, you know many existing biographies but still mm-hmm. figure out which scene to represent and how to how to dramatize it in in as few panels as possible
2: mm-hmm.
3: which is kind of the same project as as Eric's book um, and the other book I'm working on, which I'm not working on now because um, I have Eric's book has a more pressing deadline, um, is a middle grade adventure that's also set in the late Bronze Age uh, Aegean um, and Egypt uh, about a girl who's a painter of frescoes um, and the, the and she's from Santorini, the island that exploded and oh and left a sort of Aegean Pompeii and a lot of amazing frescoes. So it's about leaving the island and going to paint at Knossos and then in Egypt and looking for a lost mother who fell off a boat as they were fleeing the island. That and, sounds great. And that's it. So that's another book. And then um, whenever I f- do that, <laughs> and maybe two years from now, um, I really hope to write um, some kind of uh, memoir about working in archaeology mm-hmm. in Cyprus and the Eastern Mediterranean because that's that's uh, I did that from 1999 to about 2004. Mm-hmm. Um, is live in Cyprus and I worked in Syria and Lebanon and. And Greece and Turkey and on different excavations and um, I met eventually met my husband after having a lot of flings. Yes. (laughs) And so sort of like how I found my way out into archaeology and back out of it and and into drawing comics. That's amazing. That's really
2: interesting. What were you doing on those digs, like specifically?
3: Well. Well, drawing mostly drawing pottery. Okay, um, part part of it, and artifacts, and in some places like in Israel, I was doing more field drawing. Um, and people always ask, "Well, why don't why don't you just take pictures of it?" And the and they do, um, but but drawing it, you can you can reconstruct it in a way that doesn't mm. always work with. Um, with photographs because you can take a plan and a section and then figure out the diameter and then they'll then archaeologists can say oh that is from uh you know like late minoan 3ab because it's a a1 it's because there's a very detailed pottery sequence, you know, compared among different levels and different sites all around the Eastern Mediterranean. So there, or the whole Mediterranean. So it's like, you know, is this Coke bottle from 1920, 1930, or 1990, you mm-hmm. can tell by the shape and the design. So it's, it, pottery is like that too. That's So that really I, interesting. I got into that so that I wouldn't have to go home and get a real job (laughs) and i just stayed but then ultimately it got i got sort of um tired of it because i have all these ideas for creative narrative stories and drawing doing scientific illustration of pottery ultimately doesn't fulfill that
2: (laughs) (laughs) but what's amazing is like you've done like I I would imagine you don't have to do as much research, right? When you're actually adapting and drawing visual research, you do probably. I mean, you know, or you know where to go to look for things
3: for for the ancient world. Yeah,
2: for the ancient world. Yeah.
3: Yes. Yes. It's true. It's like yeah. all that
2: training <laughs> built up for yeah. this purpose. Yeah. yeah.
3: Yes, I feel like this. Um, this um, eleven seventy seven is is great because I mean it's a, such an interesting project because I've been to many of the sites mm-hmm. that that are in the book and I, I know what they look like and I, I I yeah I know how to research what kind of artifacts the, the the characters in the book should be carrying around and those are crucial to the to the story and and yeah and again I feel like for this book about Charlotte the the research, I did is doesn't all it's like, it doesn't always appear in the book like that. Amazing. um, um, The, the, the other girls in the school in Belgium calling Emily like dowdy and out of fashion, Mm -hmm. how to represent that because the modern reader can't tell that she's wearing out of date clothes. Right. Um, And even if you have a contrast between the clothes that they're wearing and what she's wearing, it doesn't, it's not pronounced enough for in our eyes. Right. And, uh, and yes, but I it's, it, this is a really interesting point that that I, and I remember as I worked on this, I would spend, I felt like hours on, you know, Googling 1840 or 18, 35 fashion. <laughs> mm-hmm. And a, a book would be better, maybe, because Google just they they're not that precise. Right. And, and you know, finding things that would work. And I f- would feel like I'm I'm using time up that I could be, I should and could be drawing. But it's so key to to just understand the difference between where the s- seam on the sleeve comes from. Mm-hmm. And- even if it is a tiny detail in the book it just other scholars will notice and to to really capture the flavor of the of the time it has to be right
2: and we are back and we are going to talk about some of our favorite literary biopics now there's a lot like a few come to mind initially when i like When I, you know, just proposed this topic, but like doing just a little bit of research, just like 20 minutes worth of research. I made like a really long list. So I'm just going to throw out a few so you understand how many there are. So, of course, there's To Walk Invisible about the Bronte sisters, which we have talked about on the show. But there's also Bright Star with Ben Whishaw as John Keats. There's Wilde with Stephen Fry as Oscar Wilde. There's Shirley with Elizabeth Moss as Shirley Jackson. There's, of course, Becoming Jane with Anne Hathaway as Jane Austen, which we've talked about that one as well. Colette, Kira Knightley as Colette. There was an adaptation of I Know Why the Caged Bird Sings with Diane Carroll, which I had no idea about, and I really want to see it now. There's the L. Fanning as Mary Shelley. There's lots of Mary Shelley. Biopics, by the way, which I'm sure you guys know. There's Mrs. Parker and her vicious circle with Jennifer Jason Lee as Dorothy Parker. I really, really want to see that one. Vita and Virginia about Vita Sackville West and Virginia Woolf, which I have seen. It's like a little bit of a mess, a good idea. Uh, it should have been like a series. I think it's just one of those where it's too much, too much is going on. Um, there's Iris with Kate Winslet as Iris Murdoch. There's A Quiet Passion with Cynthia Nixon as Emily Dickinson. Finding Neverland with Johnny Depp as J.M. Barry. Goodbye, Christopher Robin with Domal Gleason. And Christopher Robin with Ewan McGregor as A.A. Milne. I feel like those came out like back to back as well. They came out really wild. close together. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's Nicholas Holt as Tolkien and Tolkien. Um, The Edge of Love with Matthew Reese and Kira Knightley. So I love Darcy Matthew and Lizzie team up in a film yes. about Dylan Thomas, which was written by Kira Knightley's mom. Um there's Effie Gray, which Hannah and I still need to discuss on this podcast. Which we tried written... to watch
0: it, but the DVD player in our cottage did not work.
2: It did Aww. not work. <laughs> Just a note to those of you that are working at the Ruskin at Ruskin's estate. Yeah. <laughs> that DVD player needs to be <laughs> Yeah, you can't like learn
0: about Ruskin being a not great guy on the first page of his biography and then not be able to watch the DVD exploring (laughs) that topic while staying in one of his houses. You really want to dig into that over a log fire, you You know?
2: And um, that movie was written by Emma Thompson and it is starring her husband, who I just referred to as Willoughby, as John Ruskin. There is The Barretts of Wimpole Street, which I actually watched while I was researching for the book, which is an old film about Elizabeth Barrett Browning, which was based off of a play. There's Impromptu with Judy Davis as George Sand, which I desperately need to see. And I also really, really need to see Rowing with the Wind, which stars Hugh Grant as Lord Byron and Elizabeth Hurley as Claire Claremont. Come on, where is this film? Seriously. I haven't seen it. We all need to watch it together. And that's not all of them. That's just a few. That's just a few that I wrote down. So... The
0: comic Saving Mr. Banks, that's a biopic about Walt Disney. It's a very yeah. dramatized oh, yes. biopic about Walt Disney. Isn't it? Mm-hmm. And the woman, oh, and that woman that wrote
2: the woman oh, that wrote oh, <laughs> Mary Poppins oh, and yeah, her also, father.
0: Uh, and... <laughs> yeah. and my personal favorite biopic, Shakespeare in Love.
1: Mm. Which mm. really just mm.
2: yeah. Yeah. The best it's the best one. Wow. It's really good. I have nothing to say about that film except for the fact that um for my prom dress I got a knockoff dress that was like Gwyneth Paltrow's dress that she wore to the Oscar when er, to the Oscars when she won for Shakespeare in <gasps> Love.
0: She deserved that win honestly. That I wow. mean that film just we had it on video. We had it on VHS tape as a child and I have seen it yeah, so many it. times. <laughs> I wow. tear up. I, I tear up high. when the guy like starts giving the little like two households both and his stutter goes, oh my gosh. And when the kid goes, here, I saw him kiss her boobies. Yeah.
2: <laughs> Key moment. That kid deserves an Oscar. Kaylee, what is, uh, what's your favorite
1: biopic? So I would say my favorite biopic is so this is kind of a weird one and it's not fully a biopic so this might be cheating but Mm -hmm. i really love when drunk history covers somebody
3: because
1: drunk history really nails what i always try to do when i'm covering somebody um, even if it's a fictional character but they really make them a real person because these people's Mm -hmm. retelling and especially when they modernize their voice but then sometimes use their own speech and even with the money that drunk history is able to be because they used to start out as a youtube series you know and then they were able to get some hulu money up in there and they were able to get much more accurate costumes or even kind of film on location and so that that combination of filming and seeing them really look like the person but then be like yeah and then I just did this thing I love that because it's really what happened but also not obviously the full dialogue but it kind of brings it in with that modern audience and I just love the relatability of it so much
2: I would like desperately love to be on Drunk History I feel (laughs) like (laughs) oh it's a dream it's a dream of mine Also, the thing with drunk history is that, like, it, yeah, it makes it relatable and it makes some of these things that you've learned about in school in a very dry way, Mm -hmm. like, you reevaluate them and you go, wait a minute, that happened? That's actually crazy. That's, wait, what? You start reevaluating, like, bits of the past that I think is really interesting.
1: But then you put it in context and you put in real human emotion, which is the, you know, the constant throughout time. It's like maybe fashions and the way we talk and what we're doing and social standards change. But like the emotions and human drive doesn't, you know, getting deep with drunk history. But yeah.
2: (laughs) The best thing is when they get people on there who actually are obsessed with a particular story. Yes. So totally. they actually like it's someone that they really enjoy or they've thought about a lot or they've read a lot of biographies and maybe they're picking up on something from that person in history that they struggle with themselves or obsessed with themselves. And so um actually, those are those are some of my favorite episodes. Hannah, I'll have to send you a few clips because it's a. Oh,
1: it's, it's so a great good. show. I think I would start with the Harriet Tubman one. That is probably my favorite one actually because Mm -hmm. it just displays her as such a badass so what's good about
2: that too is that like I mean it's trying to do the same thing that we were trying to do with the book it's like we're giving you an idea of something that happened in this person's life and then we're hoping that you will go out and find their work or find Mm. scholarly work about them like it does urge you to like go to the next Um, step
1: yes completely and I love that
0: you're right like that they're having that same approach right of just like yeah this is just like a moment and we're gonna have fun with it and hopefully like having this fun little <laughs> this mm-hmm. fun little bit and then you go and find out all of, like the sad details for yourself mm-hmm. right and um, well, I remember uh, my favorite biopic actually that didn't make it into this list I think or the one that I enjoyed the most while watching it was Miss Austin Regrets I remember, so that came out, I think it came out after Becoming Jane, it wasn't too long after, and like the whole conceit of that was that thing that Lauren and I have said that we were trying to do with using the letters to give the author a voice. So it is really based on the letters that Austin was sending. Um, I know it was criticised for making like too many jumps or like putting too much weight onto things that Austin was saying in her letters. But Mm -hmm. honestly, what else, like... Yeah. What are you meant to do? That's like, that's why we read the letters. We use them to form an idea of someone. And I think what I appreciated it was, uh, what I appreciated about it was that it was trying to paint a picture of Austen based on how she was talking about her own life instead of trying to fit her life into the framework of a fictional novel, which is mm-hmm. what becoming Jane is doing. Yeah. And so regardless of like the leaps or the, like the fancy in the made up stuff, um, I really liked that and I think something that really really influenced me when trying to choose some of the points in the life of the authors to write about is I'm like I'm now 31 I was like 29 when we started working on the book um and being able to look at and think about the lives of these women when they were like in their late 30s when they were in their 40s or older um it kind of gave me hope because I think nowadays there's so much pressure put on you to achieve stuff in your 20s. And I know mm-hmm. that turning 30 for me has been like a real struggle with not everything I do now is obsolete <laughs> because I'm not in my 20s anymore. Like I'm no less interesting or impressive as a person because right. I'm a 30 year old who's like. But I don't know if that <laughs> resonates with either of you. I know it's no, such it like completely a silly does. thing. It's like I used it, to worry a lot about being like too much like Madonna and not knowing when to retire that is like honestly something that worried me a lot. And so yeah, I like yeah. that I did like that Miss Austin Regrets is um she's older and she's kind of looking back mm-hmm. which you get from the title, but Exactly. Not everything has to be about like a like a woman in her 20s falling in love for the first time. Like that yeah, isn't every story. Completely.
2: Another movie, it's a BBC movie that I just want to mention before we take off is called Pandemonium. And it's about the romantic poets. It's about Coleridge and Wordsworth. And it's like those guys just doing drugs and hanging out in the Lake District. Nice. And it is so much fun. I... um. Rachel Fader actually recommended that I watch this movie and she's like it's you know it's a bit wild but it's I think you're gonna like this movie and she was right and it just has me thinking about how I would love a Dickinson style show about those poets because there's just so much material there there's so much drama and uh, relationship drama money oh, yes. drama it was all about like, like and having enough people that are notable
0: in their own right Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. like it's hard to do so like it can be harder to do when it's just one person obviously Dickinson's doing like a really good job of it um when someone is like more isolated but when you've got like a lot of famous people as well you can have like a a lot of fun because each of those people you're gonna have like different angles of research on or like Mm -hmm. there's a lot of entry points
2: right and they all have like strong personalities mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and they're all producing work at the same time and work that's responding to each other's exactly. work and they're arguing. with each other yeah and i think what's also really interesting about them is that they are people like like william wordsworth is someone that i was never really interested in learning about because it does he does seem very like just it's very serious mm-hmm. very distant you know And then when we went to the Lake District, my ideas started, you know, forming and changing about the Wordsworths. And then I think the idea that I was really stuck on was just, like, them all sort of living up there together, helping raise each other's children. Totally. And thinking about it almost as, like, a commune, Mm -hmm. you know, and writing together. And um, that's going to form some drama. Completely. And I'm like, oh, I this is interesting.
0: I can't think about William or Dorothy Wordsworth now without just thinking about like how symbiotic their relationship was. I really, one of my mm-hmm. favorite episodes that we've worked on was the Dorothy Wordsworth episode where we like looked at the diary entries that like inspired the poem, you know, and just like mm-hmm. you can't have the one
2: without the other. I mm-hmm. think that's really interesting. And that relationship on screen, I think seeing it. Mm mm-hmm would be really interesting. So more more work about them, please. Yes. Mm. More
0: work so, yeah. about all of them, and just like yeah. differing yeah, works and like-
2: Yeah, exactly, different
0: varieties. You touched on it at the start of the episode, but um, there's a lot of very strong views about George Eliot and George Eliot's relationship with her stepchildren and her nephews and nieces and about how much responsibility she took for them. And the biographies I was reading when researching her comic it I was getting whiplash honestly from just mm-hmm. like people feel very strongly about it and it really forms their opinion as a whole about who she was mm-hmm. and how they then relate her to her work and her life and everything about it and uh yeah it would be interesting to explore how it like it's going to be a complicated relationship and I yeah. feel like a lot of the biographies I read were like this is the angle and this is the angle and I'd like to see something more like a little new, more subtle nuanced I don't know like how mm-hmm. someone can behave in a certain way and why it would be interpreted interpreted by one person as x and one person as y
1: yeah definitely yeah
2: yeah I think that's almost like what's so interesting about Emily Dickinson you get the same thing if you read about her Oh, if you read a lot of biographies about her there's some people that have one idea and then people that have the complete opposite Mm -hmm. and you do get whiplash. And what's interesting about A Quiet Passion and Dickinson are just like on total opposite ends of the spectrum, right? You're like, are these the same person? Mm -hmm. That's amazing that you would get like this interpretation out of some of the source, like same source material. Completely different people. But I'm glad both exist. Yeah, for sure. Exactly. Because you, Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah, I want the different more, interpretation exactly. Right. Because people aren't one thing. Like we all see people and interpret people via different filters, and I think that's okay. More,
1: not less. Yeah, more, more. always more. Egg,
0: exactly. Cream and a cherry, sir. Keep going. <laughs> Get a second keep going. <laughs> yes,
1: I'll have fries with that. I, You know what? Fries and ice cream is a wonderful combination. Oh, seriously. A fr- oh, my God. I know I want myself that like a <laughs> I know. Lunch plans made. So, Kaylee, where can people
2: find you on the internets?
1: Uh, so, you can find uh, kind of all of my work at uh, kayleebales.com k-a-l-e-y-b-a-l-e-s.com lucky enough to snag that one um but then you can find me on twitter and instagram um at polar bales which is something i got in high school and just kind of stuck with which is just instead of polar bears it's polar bales b-a-l-e-s like my last name <laughs> Excellent. Play on words there, you know.
0: Oh, wait for biographers <laughs> to pick that one apart.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Totally. Right. What did this mean? Did she have an obsession with polar bears? And, Hannah, where can people find us
0: on the internet? You can find us, as always, on Instagram and Twitter at Bonnets at Dawn. You can email us, bonnets at dawn at gmail.com. And you can find us on Facebook by searching for Bonnets at Dawn. And you can join our very active and lovely discussion group there you can find why she wrote literally by googling why she wrote you can buy it from many many places you can buy it from our us publisher chronicle books directly you can order it from our uk publisher abrams chronicle directly you can get it on amazon but we would recommend that you get it from your local bookshop and you can do that by walking in calling or emailing them and requesting they order you a copy of why she wrote True story.
2: I um, also have been using bookshop.org, and I love it. It's great. And they ship really fast.